Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. As regular listeners know, this season of Deep Background is all about power. We've talked about power in a range of different forms already, and we'll continue to talk about it in many, many different ways. But one of the central areas in which power is exercised in our world is the area of international affairs. Power gets expressed by governments, it gets expressed by militaries, it gets expressed by international organizations like the United Nations and the alphabet soup of other organizations that go with it. All of these forms of power are also exercised by real human beings. Over the next few weeks here on the show, we're going to be diving deep into the question of power in foreign affairs and particularly the way that international power is changing in the current moment of historical time. In order to do that, we're going to engage some of the world's leading thinkers on power in international affairs. The first guest joining us in this series of conversations is the extraordinary foreign policy thinker and expert, Anne-Marie Slaughter. Anne-Marie's accomplishments are so extraordinary, there are almost too many to list. 
She started her career as an international lawyer and as a professor at Harvard Law School. She went on to become the dean of Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. She worked in Hillary Clinton's State Department as the director of policy planning, traditionally the job for a policy intellectual who has the big picture in mind. And today, she's CEO of New America, the public policy think tank with which I have been fortunate enough to be associated at various times throughout my own career. In short, Anne-Marie is one of the most listened to and respected experts who thinks about the way power is deployed in our world, and especially about the people who deploy that power through networks. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining me. Anne-Marie, I'm so grateful to you for coming on the show. I really wanted to talk to you about the big theme that we're focused on this season on Deep Background, which is the theme of power, because you've written so deeply about power and also participated in the shaping and distribution of power uh, in the sphere of foreign affairs and international relations over your fascinating career. So I thought maybe one way to structure the conversation was to begin by asking you how things have changed over the course of your time. So let's start with, you know, when you first found yourself as an active participant in power, maybe when you helped Abe Shays <laughs> to help Nicaragua to sue the United States in front of the International Court of Justice. How did you think about international power and the United States then compared to how it's changed since? Such a great question. And that, in many ways, the changes in the distribution of power, but also the way power is wielded, has defined my career in international relations. Or over my lifetime, we've seen dramatic shifts. I worked with Abe representing Nicaragua in the 80s. So we're still in the Cold War. And that is the place to start. When you were studying international relations in the 70s and 80s, anytime after the Soviet Union really rose, you are looking at a bipolar world and everything is seen through that lens. Even the you know, case that Nicaragua brings against the United States in the world court because the United States had mined the waters of the port of Nicaragua, which is actually kind of astounding, uh, because we were opposed to the Sandinistas. Why are we opposed to the Sandinistas? Because they're supported by the Russians or the Soviets at that point. So everything is seen through this lens of you have two massive superpowers who are opposed, and they support proxy wars of all kinds. But I'd say that's the Cold War distribution of power. Two superpowers... Obviously, other nuclear powers, France, Britain, China, who are very important. And then uh, a structure of global governance that worked when the superpowers weren't trying to block one another. Today, the first thing you'd say is, well, but there aren't two superpowers. And I, I do not believe that China and the United States are the superpowers of the 21st century. I think that's far too simple. There are the traditional great powers and Russia is still a great power uh, in, 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 in its ability to disrupt anyway. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, you have the rising powers or the returning powers, India, clearly, Brazil, South Africa, but also digital powers. It's just a much more complex landscape of power. 
The other thing I would start with is look at the largest companies in the world. They are far more powerful than a hundred of the uh, states in the United Nations. And then lots of civic groups. So you have a complex shifting landscape of power that is layered on top of a traditional state system of power, and that itself has changed. We'll go more deeply into each of those types of power. Before we do, I actually want to ask something about how people who wield power in foreign affairs, individual human beings, operated in that bipolar Cold War era. Because Abe Shays, at the the time that you were working with him, was a professor at Harvard Law School. And there you were at the cusp of what will be a career where you too would work for the U.S. government. Was there something strange at that time, or was it perceived as strange, or was it perceived as completely normal for you and he to help represent a country that wasn't on the U.S. side in the Cold War? Yes, the New York Times ran a story called America's Accuser. Abe's argument, which I still use today, is there is nothing wrong with holding the United States to its own highest standards, that this was appalling, uh, the, the behavior of the United States. So it was, again, this ideal of the rule of law, of the global rule of law, as well as the domestic rule of law. And for somebody like Abe, who believed in international law, he also believed in the intersection of law and politics, this was a perfectly reasonable thing to do, and really a patriotic thing to do. Today, people would say, well, you're helping an enemy of the United States engage in what we today call lawfare. Yes. <laughs> right? Which is, there are a lot of definitions of lawfare, but people often define it as the use of law and legal institutions to push the geopolitical interests of, of a party in a conflict. That wasn't really, though, seen as the salient issue. It was more like there's an ideal of international law, and the United States errantly ar- broke it. Yes. And so therefore, it was patriotic to stand up for, 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 that, for that principle. One of the famous takeaways of that case was that you guys won. Yes. Right? Nicaragua won its lawsuit in the world court, and the U.S. took its ball and went home. Yes. And just refused to allow that judgment to mean much of anything in practice. Talk to me just for a moment about whether that marked an important inflection point for you in the history of how international institutions like the World Court participated in global power. Because I guess that was just a huge blow to the prestige of the court in a certain way. It was. So I'm, I'm thinking back. So we had this whole fight about jurisdiction. The court rules that it has jurisdiction And then the United States stops playing, but the court does issue a judgment against the United States. And so what Abe would have said, and what I I would agree, is international law is not going to work just like domestic law. It's not going to get enforced because the court has no coercive power, right? But when the government changed in the United States under the Clinton administration, there was a recognition that this was a black mark against the United States when we're there we are telling other, other countries that they ought to abide by the rule of law and they could just point to this and say you're a complete hypocrite. And so it became a bargaining chip between the U.S. government and the Nicaraguan government. And there was finally a settlement. 
And Abe would have said, that's the intersection of law and politics. I still think his book, The Cuban Missile Crisis, is one of the great works on international law and politics. And it's a monograph. It's 125 pages. I read it when I was an undergraduate in Richard Falk's law <laughs> class at Princeton. And it was all about the ways in which you can use law to shape political choices and options. So I think he would have said overall that it was worth bringing the case. It was worth certainly litigating the case. And the Nicaraguans got something out of it. I'm really interested in something you've written deeply and extensively about, one or even two full books about this, depending (laughs) on how you measure, which is the human networks of interaction between the real people who participate in the shaping of decisions in international affairs. You know, that's the way the real world works, and a lot of people don't know about it. And one of the things you've done in your work is to remind people out in the public that this is actually how international institutions often function. I want to ask you to start by just saying a word about how you think those networks of humans are shaping power now. And then I'll ask a follow-on skeptical question about whether that's a good or a bad thing. But let's start with the how, because I think this is still not well understood by the general world. When people think, where is power international domain? They either think, well, there are governments and there are these big, strong things, or there are corporations and there are these big, strong things. You've done a lot, at least in in my reading, to draw people's attention to the fact that there are humans who do this, (laughs) and they have friendships and networks and experiences and political responsibilities, and that plays a role. Yes. Well, the first thing to say is, in my generation of international lawyers, people used to talk very openly about a saying from Oscar Schachter, a former great international law professor at Columbia, who talked about the invisible college of international law. And what he meant was international lawyers around the world who absolutely came together in places like the International Court of Justice, but also in countless arbitrations, right? There's an entire world of international arbitration, of states versus states, but often corporations versus states, and everybody knew each other, and everybody uh, had either taught one another or worked with one another or been classmates, and and so this and and he would say the invisible college of international law, right? Today to say that would be automatically suspect, and I think rightly because it was a very closed shop. It was a white male shop, uh, but it wasn't just white men. It was of a very particular kind. And they went to long dinners in Geneva and The Hague and New York and various places and all knew each other and did believe in the law. So I'm not saying that they bribed one another or anything like that, but it was a cozy world it was a world of referrals. So once you're in it, you know, you you recommend other people as arbitrators or of counsel. It's a lucrative world. I think people would look at maybe the International Court of Justice or the International Bar or the United Nations and see that it's a pretty clubby group of diplomats and understand that there are corridors of power there and deals made that no one has any understanding of. What I wrote about in my first book in 2004, but I really started studying this in uh, 1994, were networks of judges, not international judges, but U.S. judges, Canadian judges, South African, uh, European judges who were talking to one another and meeting at international conferences and exchanging opinions. 
And then these networks, very powerful networks of central bankers, of finance ministers, securities commissioners, insurance commissioners, they have the same language. They face the same issues, right? And they have a very strong professional set of biases. And if we are going to have an open international order, you have to be aware of who those folks are. You have to be able to lobby them. You have to be able to restrain them. I think there's real, there's good power there, but only if it is held to account and made more transparent. Arguably, the, that network has, those networks that you mentioned have now interpenetrated with each other. Yes. And sometimes as a shorthand, people will just say the one word Davos <laughs> to describe the World Economic Forum that meets in Davos and elsewhere. And it's really hard to get invited. And it's all the room where it happened. Yes. And it's a lot of rooms. <laughs> and, you know, people with power go and are excited to go. And, you know, maybe there's something that critics of this, both from the left and the right, are onto when they say, gee, a lot of global geopolitics is being done by a small number of powerful people behind closed doors. And some people have a conspiracy theory about that. And I always say, look, you don't need a conspiracy theory about it. You know, it actually happens. It is real. It is. You know, it you is. have to be objective about what power it does and doesn't deploy. It's not absolute, but it's it's going on there. So I, I wonder if you would reflect on whether that's okay at all in the first place. I mean, could we make it better if we made the sessions more transparent at Davos? No, because no, people no, would still talk in the hallways or over, exactly. <laughs> no, and so it's no. not, so anyway, I want to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, no, that, that is very right. And I, I will just say, I, I stopped going years ago and I, it's, it's, it's awful because it is all the room where it happens and it's all concentric circles radiating out from the central hotels, but it's also a version of high school. It's it's like high school crossed with Hamilton, where you know everybody wants to be in the room where it happens, and everybody is sure there's there's a, a party going on somewhere, and there is, you know, that much like high school. So as you were talking, I was thinking, yes, how is it that back in 2004 I could have written a book called The New World Order, where I really thought that these networks of government officials, again, of financial officials, but also antitrust officials, environmental officials, judges, were, were really positive. Because I look at what you're describing now and think, no, there is no way to hold that accountable. It's like the global blob. You're not, you, there's so much power there that there is no way to hold it accountable, to make it transparent, to lobby it. None of that will work. You actually have to change the power structures. But back, you know, from 1994 to 2004, it shows you where the, the the American internationalist mindset was, I'm not going to talk about the world. This is the American yeah. international mindset, which was the Cold War is finally over. The global governance infrastructure we and our allies put in place after 1945 can actually work. You created the International Criminal Court. You're bringing people to account. And I was writing saying, you know, instead of just focusing on these big global institutions, let's look at these networks because they can get things done and we need things done. Like if you have all global environmental ministers and they're all meeting and they all adopt emissions controls, we could get something done. And that was still a very optimistic vision of global governance. Since then, A, again, as you pointed out, the CEOs are more powerful than many, many, many of the government leaders. 
And you've also got even civic groups, which I admire, but you know, the big eight civic groups, they're in those rooms too. And you all, and of course, tell listeners, tell listeners what you mean by that. Yes. Sorry. The, the big eight non-governmental organizations, Oxfam, Mercy Corps, CARE, Doctors Without Borders, who are great organizations, but they have a lot of power because they're very big, they're global. And in a way, they kind of represent global civil society in a lot of these rooms of power. And whereas there are many smaller non-governmental organizations, civic organizations of all kinds, who also feel that they don't have power. Many of them are in the global south. They are upset about the global north. But the larger picture, I think, for many people is just as you said, that there's this deeply networked global elite of people who've been in government, people who are in business, people who are at the heads of top universities and top civic organizations, the Davos crowd. And I, I would be counted as one. I'll be counted. I was, I was, I was going to say. I was going mean, to say, I'm not, I check, totally Check, would, check, check. You check, ran check, policy check. planning would, in the State Department. You yes, ran what yes. was then the Woodrow Wilson School at Ab- Princeton. Like, absolutely. Yeah. That's absolutely. one of the reasons you were so insightful about this, I think, is that you were telling the story <laughs> from the inside. Right, right. Um, so what changed? I mean, I, one one crude way to say it would be 94 to 2004, immediate post-Cold War. Right. U.S. has a very dominant global position, mostly because the Soviets have just crumbled. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, American foreign policy thinkers like you are trying to figure out what will work. Right. And one possibility is maybe these networks would be a way for us to express power without pushing people around. You know, that's they right. would. That, that's that's maybe what a, a foreign policy realist, the cynic, would say about why that looked good then. <laughs> what 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 turned? What and you could also see it optimistically, right? I mean, people were well-meaning. The Soviet Union was gone. We were hoping to really make change in that period of time. That's when the International Criminal Court was coming into existence. Exactly. Horrible things happened in Rwanda and Yugoslavia, but we created the International Tribunals for Yugoslavia, Criminal Tribunals for Yugoslavia, and for Rwanda in order to respond to those. Um, been better if they hadn't happened in the first place, but once they happened, at least people were going to be held to account. What's happened over the last now nearly twenty years? that has made it so clear to you, and I think to many observers, at least those who are outside of the blob, that the blob isn't working. And I mean, here I would just say, Donald Trump is just a symptom yes. of a lot of people's feeling that it's not working rather than a than any kind of a cause of it. Yes. And I would add that during that same period, 94 to 2004, the European Union is becoming a union, right? So when I look at net, I was looking at networked government structures, that is the European Union. Mm -hmm. It is networks Mm -hmm. of all their officials. And it, you know, develops a single market, it develops a common currency, it comes together as a political union. So it it was a much more optimistic period for the ability to have both law and government capacity at the global level. And I saw these networks, if they could be more participatory, inclusive, and transparent as a big piece of it. So what has changed? Wow. Well, the starting point, I think you would say, is that hasn't delivered, right? As I sit now, I just have to start from the prospect of however imperfect the UN system was, and it always was, but before the end of the Cold War and after, you still, you had a Asian financial crisis in 1997, and the finance ministers came together and stabilized it. 
and climate change. We had the Kyoto Protocol. There was still global problem-solving capacity. Today, you're looking at a climate that is out of control. There, we, could, we have the Paris Agreement, but nobody thinks that's, that is going to get us there. We have a global pandemic. The WHO was relatively powerless. It, it, you, you had to put together private, again, and public networks, and even that didn't work nearly as well. You have global corruption, tax havens. If you are not just even even a member of the elite looking around, much less somebody who's been on the losing end of the global economy, you just sense that these institutions are talking shops at best, and these deals that are being cut are benefiting the privileged at the expense of every everyone else. So I, th- I think there's not optimism about what the international system is doing. I do also think the internet is... is a huge part of this because we now actually have a tangible sense when we think about the World Wide Web of just the extraordinary complexity of it all. And with all the these, you know, different groups coming together, and of course they can come together virtually and they can come together in the dark web, and we have a much better sense of all the crime that uh, is a part of all those networks. So, you know, my book in 2017 is about how do we use networks to fight criminal networks? How do we use networks to undo the power of other networks? Or simply, how do we see and map and try to control networks? So it's a far more complex world and a much less optimistic one. We'll be right back. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, "This is this is not right. 
How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Anne-Marie, what would work? What should we be trying to have in place of the blob? I mean, so take the climate change issue, which is so pressing that you mentioned. We had international agreements. We still have some international agreements. They don't look like they're enough. That said, climate change remains a global problem. And presumably, any solution still is going to require coordinated global action. So what's going to work? Such a simple question. What's going to work? Well, I, mean, I would we, start... We call it deep background for a reason. We don't, we don't, <laughs> we don't bother with the chit-chat. We just dive right in. So I would start by saying any fantasy of world government or even proto-world government cannot work because it's just far too complex. So if you look at the UN system, that's a proto world government with a hard power core. Right? I mean, there's the Security Council is a realist core with an institutionalist wrapping uh, because Roosevelt and Stalin and Churchill knew full well that if the great powers were not on board, you weren't going to get anything done. But they thought uh, that there were enough situations where the great powers would either uh, be on board or would not block one another that it could work. And I think I think all things considered, the world's been better off with the United Nations than without one. But today, even if you could convene some kind of global conference, uh, you, you it would be crazy to try to set something up that looked like a global executive, a global legislature, so the Security Council, the General Assembly, and an international court. <laughs> no. Yeah. Not that those things don't have some place, but I think of the world in network terms. Uh, I think of it in you know, the chessboard, the world of, of states, and then the, the web, the world of all these networks, and they're superimposed on top of each other. And when you're thinking about how are you going to solve global problems with both of those, with the state world and, and the, this world of networks, corporations and government officials and everybody else and criminals, then I think you need to assume there is no one solution. There are not even probably even <laughs> five solutions, but we'll, let's take climate change as, a, as, a, as an example. You do need a global agreement. The Paris Agreement's quite important because it does set, it, it, it sort of distills scientific consensus and says, this is what we're aiming for. You need focal points and that's a focal point. The states at least are talking to each other and they keep coming back together. And so you have a diplomatic forum, which is useful uh, politically I think the most important part of that is the allowance for non-party stakeholders, which just means everybody who's not a state, but who has a huge stake in combating climate change. So all the mayors, all the governors, right? If I'm thinking about how I want to fight climate change, governors of states and mayors of cities who actually have the ability to reduce carbon emissions are an enormous piece of the puzzle. More so, not more so, but certainly in addition to national governments. And you want to talk to them directly. The corporate power is 
vast. Right? Last week, the activists got two climate activists onto the board of Exxon, of ExxonMobil. If you can change the behavior of you know, fossil fuel companies, but also many others to get them to, to, to pledge to zero emissions, then you have many, many more levers. But you also then need to empower the people who are suffering the most from climate change politically. And you need to think about how do you empower those voices so that you get the political will domestically. All of that is really messy. I think you can, that's why I wrote a book about network theory. You can map it and then you can say who is connected to whom, and this, these are bad connections. And then you can say, and who is not connected to whom, who needs to be, and how do we do that efficiently? It can be done, uh, but you need a very different way of thinking about global structures. And to your point, the power that gets wielded is not people sitting in foreign ministers sitting in a you know paneled room in Davos making deals. It is power with power of movements, power you know digital power. It's it's all sorts of really messy kinds of of power that you have to think about and mobilize. Let me ask you about that because I, I have a worry about the good side here. I mean, the good side is as you say. Um, activists, climate activists on the Exxon board. Amazing. You know, bring people into the network who are from underprivileged backgrounds or from vulnerable communities, whether globally or locally. Excellent. We already saw this past year that the fact that there were just a small number, but they existed, of African-Americans who were CEOs of Fortune 500 companies Huge. affected, at least to some degree, corporate behavior around the Georgia vo voter suppression law as I, as I think of it. Oh yeah. That all that said, that's all the good side. I have this worry that what we're really talking about is just slightly changing the conversation by virtue of slightly changing who's in the room when the same powerful elites still make the decisions. So, Exxon, you know, two activists is great, they might affect the conversation, they don't control the board of directors and they never will. Because as a numerical matter, we, we collectively have set up corporate governance so that the shareholders who sits on the board are those who own the shares, and that's the big institutional shareholders, and they're not likely to choose activists who would put the businesses into a position of making less money. So I guess what I'm trying to say is this. I, I take one of the deep lessons of your body of work to be we need to expand these networks because the networks are so powerful. And that makes it very valuable to expand the networks. But I also hear you saying at the same time, you know, it's not enough just to expand the networks. We would need to change the structure of power behind the networks. And here, sorry for being a bit long-winded about this, but here it seems to me that the real power behind them is global capital. That unlike the Cold War where the real power were the governments, the you know Eastern Bloc or Western Bloc, today it really is the big corporations that just bring so much money to bear, so much influence to bear, on the governments, that they will push the decision-making in a way that serves their interests, which, to be fair, means the interests of their shareholders. Am I sounding too much like, you know, the young Marx there, or do you think, <laughs> there's, do you think there is something to it? <laughs> um, so first, I think, again, 
you are correct. I'm trying to be realistic enough to say, look, there's never going to be a world where there isn't an elite and an, a power structure. At least we've mm -hmm. never seen that. No society. Mm -hmm. so, that, so, so to some extent, you've just got to accept that. You can say ours, at least in the United States, is deeply corrupt. I mean, it's so closed and the political system does not allow you to change it. But I think what I would say in terms of, so what do you do with these networks? I'd say two things. One is it's as important to disconnect connections that are dangerous or bad as it is to connect folks who you need to bring in. So it, it really is when I talk about strategies of connection as opposed to strategies of conflict, I'm saying you've got to map this and you've got to see, to use my example of if you really changed the lobbying laws, but more importantly, the campaign finance laws, because that's what gives lobbyists power, then you're disrupting the connection between corporate America and Congress in a way that is going to make it easier for people to get to elect people who will represent their interests and not corporate interests. And you can do that in many ways. And indeed, a progressive politics should be about restraining corporate power, not just by antitrust or other ways, but by really recognizing where are those pernicious connections? And again, it's not just transparency. I think you have to rupture them. So partly, I think you can really restrain corporate power that way. I think on the other hand, a global tax regime, I was just reading a new book that's coming out by Alec Ross about global taxation, one global taxation. Those Then you need to connect up uh, all these tax regimes that right now tax lawyers and accountants can manipulate. So again, I think if you can't, you cannot undo the networked world. I mean, it's just, it, it is, it's there. always been true yeah. and now it can be global. So you have to come up with strategies of connection and disconnection. And again, the other thing I would say in terms of shifting the power balance, imagine if you have what I call an impact hub for every sustainable development goal. Sustainable development goals are sort of the Bible of good things that we would love to see happen. And But each one has an impact hub that has, yes, international organizations represented, but also civic groups of all kinds, investments, lots of impact capital, and metrics of how are you advancing toward this goal. So you can create a, you've got networks, but hubs are where you can actually have people come together, where you can also make it much more transparent. But equally importantly, you can then have metrics of progress that advocacy can mobilize around, politics can mobilize around, and people can be called to account. I don't think it's perfect. But I think if you look at the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, they've done that. Yeah, just say a word more. This is a nice place for us to wind up about what an impact hub literally is. It's it's an abstract concept. <laughs> it's an abstract concept. So, and it, and it's, so you have a network, which is lots of different people right. with lots of different interests. I guess they are getting together in the impact hub. What, what is the impact no, hub? No, so, well, all right. So right now you'd say, well, the United Nations is the is a hub of the global uh, system of global governance, right? Everybody mm -hmm. comes together mm -hmm. in New York. Uh, I'll take the this example of the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. So we have a World Health Organization, and that's mm -hmm. a hub for global health. But the Gates Foundation and the World Health Organization and a group of pharmaceutical companies and a lot of civic organizations came together 20 years ago and said, you know, we're going to create an alliance. Very interesting. Alliances used to be only states. This is a global alliance of 
politics people, corporate people, civic people, scientists, universities. And our goal is going to be to immunize the world's children. And so the hub is simply the secretariat. It's much smaller and looser than something like the United Nations. But there is something, there's a website there, there is a, you know, a governance structure. And they commit then, they have, a, they have networks set up in many different countries, but with a very clear goal of immunizing children. And they connect all these different actors for measurable impact. So I call that an impact hub, and I can imagine doing that around water security. And, and climate change is too big. You'd have to break it up into different, mm-hmm. different things. But lots of environmental goals, lots of social goals. Health is probably easier because it's very measurable. But, you know, so if you say global peace, not so much. If you talked about good jobs, right? And what would that take? You can, again, take this vi- tangled morass of networks everywhere and start thinking about how how do you rationalize them and how do you structure them for specific goals and if i look at the world i think about developing those impact hubs in many different places this would not just be the north in ways that would at least give you something to start with when you're thinking about actually getting these things done it's fascinating. It also feels ever so slightly like coming full circle. These, these alliances that produce the impact hubs, one way they differ from the old arrangements is that they're not really operating in the same way as tools of the big governments, as a, tools of the states. Right. They are, as you describe them, NGOs, yes. corporations, the super mega rich. And so I guess I want to close by asking you whether you think with some others that states are sort of receding in this world, not that they're gone, but that they're less important to solving stuff than you might have thought of them as being 25 or, or 30 years ago, because they, they're part of the system that hasn't, hasn't delivered for people. Hmm. Or do you think they're just as strong and important as ever, as some days I tend to think, and that these institutions are just uh, alternative routes, as it were, for trying to get things done when the states don't have an interest. So I do. I think states are less powerful than they were, for sure. Look, the United Nations was designed for a world of 60 states, and it's got mm-hmm. 200 states, and it doesn't mm-hmm. work. Right? The mm-hmm. European Union, for all of its flaws, works because it's got 27 states. And it, so part of this, when we talk about global governance, is too much, too much bureaucracy, sort of victims of its own success. I do think governments have less power, but I also think we'll never address our problems unless we strengthen governmental power in lots of ways. Uh, Certainly around corporations, you're never going to get global taxes unless you have governments who really come together and and, enforce it. I also think if you really look at, at, at scale, governments have a scale that, that nothing else can reach. But I, uh, government itself has to be reorganized, right? You've got these huge hierarchies. They cannot operate in this world of connection and disconnection very well, but they are essential. And as broken as I think American democracy is, I'd still rather put my faith in the American government than, than the, any foundation or corporation. What I would say, though, is coming back to power, 
where do I see real hope in this idea of impact hubs? It's more the mayors and the governors. And when I think about mayors, that's something any American can think, oh, well, wait a minute, I could work in the mayor's office. If you want to represent the population of the United States, if you bring together the staffs of mayors across the country, it is far more representative than the Washington bureaucracy. So there is a way there of redressing the power balance. You're still going to have elites, but it's not this, it's not the Davos elite. It is more people coming together around specific issues with lots, again, think about mayors. I think you can redress the power balance by opening opening up these networks, sort of sources of power that are more accessible to regular citizens than the kind of calcification of the global elite, which is what I think we see now. I'm very happy that you were able to end with that <laughs> modestly optimistic picture. And I'm I just want to express gratitude for your your brilliance, your analysis, your generosity with your with your time today and really for the whole body of your work. We need people like you who are in the inside and then are also capable of explaining it to us and then critiquing it simultaneously. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. What a great conversation. One of the reasons I wanted to hear from Anne-Marie was precisely that she's the leading theorist of how networks of powerful people interact in order to try to make change and to facilitate international organizations doing their job well. Anne-Marie laid out very cogently and very honestly and self-reflectively how her own perceptions of the power of those networks has changed over time. She is just as committed as she ever was to the idea that power should be deployed equally, that it should be deployed fairly, and that it should contribute to an order in international relations that is rational, logical, and that looks out for fundamental rights and freedoms. Yet she herself has come to be skeptical of the way that networks of elite international actors are perceived globally. And indeed, she's even skeptical about whether those same networks can always do everything that they set out to do successfully. In short, Anne-Marie is describing a trajectory followed by many liberal internationalists, among whom I would count myself. In the aftermath of the Cold War, great hope, optimism, and interest in the way that international global networks of thoughtful people making rational decisions could make the world a safer and a better place and address long-term serious problems, problems that today are clearer than ever on issues like climate. Yet, over the intervening decades since the end of the Cold War, we've been mugged by reality, forced to see the ways in which liberal internationalism and the globalization that's come with it has left many people behind and disillusioned many, many people on the left and the right with the way international power is deployed. Under those circumstances, we need new imagining, we need new approaches, we need variety in how power is deployed, and we need clarity in terms of the goals for which we are trying to deploy power. Anne-Marie is at the forefront of those drawing our attention to the need for those things. It was and remains a privilege for me to learn from such a vibrant foreign policy intellectual as Anne-Marie. I hope and trust that you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did, and I hope you're looking forward as much as I am to the next several conversations that we will continue to have with foreign policy thinkers about the grand issues 
of America in the world, the transformation of power, and what needs to be done in the years ahead. I'll admit to regular listeners that I still haven't settled on the perfect substitute for my COVID sign-off, telling you all to be careful, be safe, and be well. But for the moment, as more and more of us are vaccinated, and we come closer and closer to being able to begin to imagine a safer world, at least here in the United States, let me say, for now, think deep thoughts, be well, and have a little fun. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday. And our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.